I was just trying to be a little bit sort of provocative into thinking about these studies and how we don't replace. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I did it myself. I'm oh horrible. How can you replace? We have therapy. it on record. Mark, Matt said Reno was on there. <laughs> oh, can you know? Uh, that anyway. that's going to go into the start of the uh, I podcast. That's the cold open yeah. right yeah. there. We've been waiting for it. <laughs> Welcome to Freely Filtered, the twice a month podcast that summarizes and discusses recent NFJC journal clubs. NFJC is the Twitter Nephrology Journal Club, where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the research and developments that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, we suggest that you talk to your doctor. This podcast may discuss off-label and unapproved medications. Hello, my name is Joel Toth, Kidney Boy on Twitter. Tonight, we have four members of the Filtrate, plus a couple of special guests. Jay Coiner of the University of Chicago. Jay? Hi, Joel. Thanks for having me. Jay Coiner, Medical Director of Acute Dialysis and Director of ICU Nephrology. My Twitter handle, I'm supposed to tell you, is at Jay Coiner. J-A-Y-K-O-Y-N-E-R. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Happy to have you on board. And Anitha Vijayan of Washington University. Hi, my name is Anita Vijayan. I'm the Medical Director for Acute Dialysis at Barnes-Jewish Hospital in St. Louis. I'm excited to be here, and my Twitter handle is at VijayanMD, V-I-J-A-Y-A-N-M-D. Did I get that? Is that part of WashU, or do I have that wrong? Yes. It is. It is. Uh, yes, I'm a professor of medicine at Washington University in St. Louis. And what's the name of your hospital? Barnes-Jewish Hospital. Barnes-Jewish. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, and the filtrate, Swap. Hi, I'm Swapnil Hiramad. I am a nephrologist and epidemiologist at the University of Ottawa. I tweeted H. Swapnil for this trial. I do have a conflict of interest. Uh, we were part of the um, START AKI trial and I was one of the site uh, sub-investigators. Excellent. Jenny? My name is Jenny Lin. I'm a physician scientist at Northwestern University and I tweet at Jenny J. Lin. And Matt? Hello, this is Matt Sparks. I'm a nephrologist at Duke University. I'm also an adamant supporter of the renin angiotensin system, an avoider of baclofen, and I want to rid the language of the word renal. I tweet at nephro underscore sparks. So, so what trial are we discussing today, by the way? Can you say that, Matt? Um, they messed up, and it should be, uh, it's hard to really say, but it's Stark, um, AKI. In Samuel Shem's pivotal book on medical education, The House of God, there is a scene where the rigid, tightly wound Joe breaks down after she loses a patient. The patient, another physician, Dr. Binsky, had a large MI and was in the cardiac ICU. After a tumultuous night where he went through every rhythm in the book, he stabilizes that morning and is in normal sinus rhythm. Dr. Binsky sighs relief when he is told that he is in NSR, and 10 seconds later, he arrests and dies. Samuel Shem writes, Joe broke. She sat in the staff room with Pincus and me, crying, repeating over and over. He couldn't have died. He was in normal sinus rhythm. And now he's dead. It doesn't make any sense statistically. I can't take this absurdity anymore. And this is where nephrology finds itself today. We were able to deploy dialysis in the ICU to treat all the metabolic abnormalities of AKI. And yet we have not been able to make significant dents in the mortality of ICU AKI. 
Nephrology is a whole field of Joes, where instead of muttering about NSR, we watch our patients die with perfectly balanced electrolytes. And we mutter to ourselves, but their electrolytes were normal. Out of this disconnect have come a number of initiatives to try to improve outcomes beyond making the labs look pretty. After Pileski's ATN trial showed that increased dose of dialysis did not improve AKI outcome, attention focused on the timing of dialysis. The idea would be treating acute kidney injury earlier with dialysis would lead to improved outcomes. In 2016, we saw our first large randomized controlled trials with the twin publications of Akiki and Elaine. These had disparate results with Akiki showing no improvement and Elaine showing significant improvement in outcomes. Then two years ago in 2018, Ideal ICU showed no improvement with early dialysis. And now we have the definitive trial on early dialysis. Get ready for another decade of playing Joe. Okay, Swap, do you want to tell us a little bit about the methods? Awesome. So START AKI, which stands for, uh, sorry, Matt, it stands for standard or accelerated renal replacement therapy in the ICU. Uh, The START AKI trial was uh, conducted across 15 countries and 168 hospitals in these 15 countries led by Ron Wald and Sean Bagshaw from uh, Canada. So the countries included were Australia, New Zealand in particular, uh, but also a a bunch of European countries, China, as well as a few American sites. The trial itself was a randomized, a double-blind, open-label trial where patients were randomized to either standard renal replacement therapy as far as the timing is concerned or accelerated renal replacement therapy as far as the timing is concerned. In this case, of course, standard refers to sort of the late arm and accelerated refers to uh, what most of us would think as early. But the standard, very specifically, they were dialyzing people for cause. Largely, they were waiting for pretty specific triggers to start dialysis abnormal potassium, acid-base status, volume exactly. status. Exactly. Your patients who are not recovering after, you know, 72 hours or so. So, yeah, standard were what most of us would think as standard reasons for having for doing dialysis. But as you know, uh, there has been a push towards doing dialysis earlier and earlier. Uh, and why should you wait when you know that the kidney injury is already happening, right? Uh, so, Claudio Ronco and many others have written about this for the last decade, which is why all these trials were done. Uh, is that if you know AKI is happening, why do you want to wait till something bad happens? Jay, can you give us a sense of what was the, what were the pieces of the data? What were the threads that people were pulling on to make uh, the idea of early dialysis enticing? From as far back as the 90s, there's anecdotal or small single-center studies that actually demonstrated a benefit. Uh, studies that sort of even predate the ATN or even the Ronco trial that was published in 2000 in The Lancet that showed dose. There were some studies that actually looked at high high and low dose and early versus late. And consistently, the early folks did better. I know that there was a large uh, meta-analysis, I'm forgetting on the year, in AJKD by Sebra, and it was a Berton Jaber's group out of Tufts at the time. They actually amassed probably the five, the five to seven randomized control trial and then all of the publication bias, but published um, non-randomized trials that all pointed towards there being a benefit to being early. And I think on some level, we as physicians like to think that when we do something uh, sooner, it, it always has a benefit. So all the time when we deal with early versus late, we, de- we run into lead time bias. Now, clearly in a randomized control trial like this, we didn't have that problem. And I'm wondering, did those early trials, were they susceptible to lead time bias? So I don't know that all of them were. I think one of the other things that changed 
uh, over time was the standardized definition of AKI. So that I, I, I'm not going to be able to go back to every single one of those individual trials and tell you how they defined it. But I think the easiest way to think about it is, is that if you think back to the original uh, ARDS trial, which I know is a little bit off topic, they defined AKI as anyone with a creatinine above two. Didn't matter if you came in with a creatinine above two or you uh, worked your way there. So that when you think about trials from the late 90s, or early 2000s, before rifle, before akin, it was sort of the wild west in terms of what actually constituted AKI. It wasn't this doubling or tripling of creatinine that we've we, gotten we can't to. We can't trust the pulmonologist to do anything right, can we? Well, I'm, I'm steering clear of that. Um, <laughs> but also, Anita, some, some of the criteria used to uh, distinguish what was, what was early was a BUN target as well, right? So if right. you look back to the 60s and 70s, there were, or I should say 60s, 70s to 80s, they were looking at BUN targets of 200 versus 100. And then uh, even more recent studies prior to our um, major trials, they were looking at a BUN of greater than 90 versus less than 90 as to initiation of kidney replacement therapy. Um, so those are those are retrospective, just going back, just going back and looking at early dialysis versus late dialysis type things. Yes, BUN targets. Yeah, and those showed a compelling indication that the early, the lower BUN did better. Not all of them. There was one meta-analysis, I think it was by, or was it a retrospective analysis from the uh, one of the uh, multi-center trials by Kathleen Liu, uh, which suggested that early was better if you base it on BUN. And you think that was a retrospective analysis of what type of trial? It was a it was a multi center trial. Um, what was it called, Jay? Where it's, they're looking at? She's talking about the Picard trial. Picard, Picard uh, trials, right? yeah, gotcha. yeah, Picard trials, yeah. So prospectively, uh, is, that a, is that a Star Trek trial? Is it done in another planet? <laughs> yeah, but so, but it was a number one. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> but that's uh, it. Would be still you know the with the observational study you have the sort of the lead time bias right because patients who get dialysis early and patients who get dialysis late are inherently different. For sure. Swap, walk us through lead time bias and make sure, just so we understand, what what, what is this lead time bias that I would so, pretended I knew about so I sounded smart? I, got so to I get mean, that you talk about lead time quick. bias in cancer. Say someone who has uh, 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 breast cancer in situ, many of those patients are going to have an excellent prognosis anyways. And, and basically the, the cancer which was going to happen two years later, you're picking it up now. So as a result of that, these patients have, are living for two years longer anyways, right? You're just diagnosing them early uh, when you are screening and, and picking things up early. You know, so that is an issue if you're doing dialysis early. Uh, but if you're, looking at, if you're looking at hospital mortality, shouldn't that disappear? Is that not, no longer a problem? Because, I mean, this is a different problem than like the breast cancer screening. Right, right. But in, in the late group, in the patients who are having late dialysis, you are excluding patients who recovered. Right, which is the big thing, uh, which as we shall see is going to happen here. So it's only the sicker patients who go on to require dialysis late. So late dialysis in an observational study would potentially include patients who are sicker. Now you could argue that you know it would exclude patients who died uh, in between the early and the late uh, decision. Right, the immortal time bias actually goes the other way, right? Right, right, exactly. If you so that's why the, the the RCT is important, right? The observational study is useful to guide us, but a, but a randomized control trial is essential. But and as Anita and Jay pointed out, in the 80s and 90s, we didn't even have the right tools. Right, Akin didn't exist. We didn't have standardized definitions. So it was the wild west uh, before then. Yeah. So, so you know, these trials that have been done, they stand on the shoulders of all the giants who made this possible. Yeah, let's not give too much credit. I mean, 
they're not giants. All they did was define AKI and got everybody to agree to it. I mean, it's an important step, but I mean, you know, this is this exactly. Is, but you need to. This talk is not the same, relativity. Yeah, Come on yeah. now. So, so to talk of the same language, you know, I was talking about standard versus accelerated. I remember talking to Ron Wald about this, and he said, you know, it's funny that in in Canada and the U.S. we think about standard versus accelerated. Accelerated being early. In Australia, when he went to sell this trial, they said, oh, no, no, accelerated. Why are you calling it accelerated? That's our standard of care. But that's because I think in Canada and Europe, um, a lot of the ICUs are run uh, entirely by intensivists, right? These are closed ICUs, Mm -hmm. as they call it, right? So um, intensivists probably will start uh, RRT earlier than um, nephrologists. Exactly. So my concept of early and someone else's concept of early would be quite different uh, in that respect. Uh, So that's why, again, the standardized definitions are so important. And if you allow me to go on with the methods uh, oh the methods yes i forgot about the methods (laughs) wow (laughs) so uh so the trial was standard versus accelerated uh timing for renal replacement therapy uh and the key here is you know what was the patient population as as we may come to discuss later uh ekiki was kedaigo stage three uh and elaine aki was kedaigo stage two Uh, is it kdigo or kedaigo Improving, yeah. So it should be KDGO, you're right. I think it's, it's renal. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This could be oh. your last invitation. <laughs> I already assumed, like, unless perfect. Already assumed it was. That <laughs> <laughs> barbecue episode is coming soon. So in this case, they could have, uh, in, in start AKI, uh, st- stocked AKI, uh, they could be sta- KDIGO stage 2 or stage 3 because these were admitted to ICU with AKI. Again, stage 2 meaning they had to have a doubling of creatinine and uh, stage 3 uh, meaning that the absolute creatinine level could should be more than 4 uh, with an increase of uh, 0.3 milligram per deciliter from baseline or a urine output I just want to make sure I understand. To be enrolled, all they needed was stage 2. Stage, that yes. was enough to qualify for this study? That's right. But the exclusion criteria are more interesting. So uh, there are a bunch of exclusion criteria. For example, if someone had obstruction or a GN or AIN or a kidney transplant, they were out. But if the K, if the potassium was more than 5.5, uh, they were excluded. If the bicarb was less than uh, 15, I think they were excluded. So uh, And and the, the, to me, the interesting part was that there was a physician veto. Uh, at least that's yes. how we were told like about that. it. I like um, that. Yeah. So the uh, the critical care physician and if the nephrologist was also involved, the, the nephrologist. So in our case, in our center, it had to be both of us had to say that yes, the patient could be randomized, uh, could be enrolled based on two ways. So if if they thought that the patient would need dialysis right away, then uh, the patient had to be excluded. So if if I thought that the patient is so sick that uh, my clinical gestalt says the patient is going to need dialysis in the next hour, you know, next few hours, then it doesn't make any sense to randomize them because it, they could potentially be randomized to standard, in which case, you know, you would, should wait for a few, for, for a nice separation. On the other hand, if I thought this patient was not going to need dialysis, if they were going to recover, say, or, or uh, they were very likely to die, then I could say, hey, there's no point in enrolling those patients. So, do, you uh, think, do you think this equipoise check improves or decreases generalizability of the study? I think it, it makes it a more pragmatic study uh, in some respects. For the generalizability, you know, you could look at the table one and see, are these the kind of patients that I would uh, think about? But uh, the, this kind of thing, this, this, this is subtle. This may not even show up in the difference in a table one. Like this is really, and I think it improves generalizability because there, there are, are. Tell, tell, please help me. 
Don't make me describe it. Yeah, yeah, no, I definitely think that it improves generalizability and um, the practical aspects of the study, because this is what happens in the ICU all the time, right? We nephrologists go in there, discuss with the intensivist. We may have a different approach on what, when the patient should start dialysis from the intensivist. So I think that kind of veto power or that maybe it will lead to discussion between the intensivist and nephrologist. And then uh, I think that'll make a better decision regarding timing of KRT. I think it only does that if you are working in a place where a nephrologist and intensivists jointly make that decision. I don't know the breakdown in uh, in the study population, right? It's a predominantly Canadian, uh, or it started as a Canadian study, but as we pointed out in Australia and other parts of the world, I'm not so sure that the nephrologists are engaged in that conversation. So, you know, it's not to say that two intensivists can't have this, that same conversation and be of a different mindset, but I don't know that uh, reading the paper or the supplement gives you a sense of how many nephrologists versus how many intensivists versus how many both are enrolling in uh, in the trial. But for sure, the fact that there's so many trials in multinational definitely makes it much more generalizable in and of itself, right? And it, it separates your two groups, right? If you didn't have this check, there would be a number of patients in the delayed start that you randomize into delayed start and they immediately got started, right? Because this is what this is trying to avoid. And that doesn't help anybody, right? That just that just decreases the power of the study and we don't get an answer at the end. Exactly. And you're trying to get at some of the subjective decision-making that goes into it, right? It's not just one, two, three number dialysis, right? We don't make decisions like that. Uh, so it's sort of getting in a little bit into that. I do have a question. In the paragraph where they describe this um, equipoise check, it says, uh, after determination of full eligibility, a 12-hour window was allotted for consent. That's fine. But then there's a parenthetical. As applicable. Like, when is consent not applicable? What, 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 what does that so mean? So in, in Australia, it's implied. So if you're admitted to the ICU in Australia, and I think New Zealand too, you have implied consent. So yeah, you know, For I, a study, for a, for a randomized controlled trial, you're in the ICU, boom, we're drafting right, you. Right, right. And I mean, we wow. can go on a segue for, uh, for for the consent issue longer. Remember, uh, Ekiki, it was the same. If there was equipoise, uh, there was no consent involved. They just got an information sheet. And in at our center also, we didn't have no consent. We had deferred consent where, you know, they would be enrolled. And after they woke up, uh, the patients... If they the, woke up. If they woke up, they would if give they consent. If they woke up, they have 43% mortality. I mean. Exactly. After having thought about this from many different angles, I think it's pretty uh, legitimate to do it this way because, you know, you've got a sick person in the ICU. They have got acute kidney injury. They are on the ventilator often. What are you going to say? How, how is the consent process going to work out? I, right? will I can't tell you, imagine. It's not going to As fly in the United States. Yeah. Because yeah. um, I was part of the ATN study and uh, we enrolled 138 patients in the ATN study. The number of facts, consents we had to do to the relatives, we had 24 hours to get consent. It was hard, but no IRB in the exactly. US will allow it. Exactly. It's, it's more was, cultural was, and legal uh, than, than, you know, logical. Yeah. yeah. When I was a fellow, I had to get consent for ICU patients for a vitamin D study. And you would go to the family, you'd go to the, you know, the wife, the husband's hanging on by a mm -hmm. thread. And you're like, yeah. we want to randomize your patient to active vitamin D or not. <laughs> and they were like, well, randomized. And she would just say, just do what you think is best. I was like, no, I can't do that. I don't know. What, it's a placebo controlled. I don't got no idea. But it was really hard to get consent. It, it, really, it was awkward, right? It was like putting an additional burden Absolutely. onto a family kind of on their worst possible day. So in this case, if they were randomized, if they were randomized to the accelerated, which is the early uh, renal replacement therapy arm, they, they had about 12 hours to get them on the renal replacement therapy, which could be CRRT, which could be, sorry, CKRT, or it could be uh, SLED or, or what have you, uh, PIRRT. Uh, it could be any modality, which is whatever the site was using. And as we 
second seat was mostly CRRT. And in, in the standard arm, they had to wait until there was a clinical indication, you know, say hyperkalemia, metabolic acidosis, pulmonary edema, or uh, 72 hours with no recovery. Uh, and the whole plan was that, you know, there should be a nice separation, which did occur as we shall see. So the main outcomes, coming to outcomes, the main outcome was uh, mortality at 90 days, which is, you know, very, very objective. Uh, they had, there were a bunch of secondary outcomes, the key ones being... Is, you know, is 90 days longer than no? I thought, that, I was kind of surprised. I, I thought a lot of these ICD, ICU studies use 28 days. Is 90 days more standard? I mean, I think that 90 days is, a, when you look back at many, not just renal, but other ICU studies, yeah, there are some that use one month or 28 day, but there are a lot Jay, that use... Jay, you are on, you are on notice. Yeah. Why is that? Three. Renal. I'm renal. Right. Renal. renal. Jeez, um, that's, that's number three. I mean, right. this is really. I knew it was going to be bad. I mean, this is it, I had, CRRT. Yeah. I, I, I knew I knew Jay was going to push it, but I had no idea. I didn't even. I'm that, sorry. That's just. Yeah, he's he's ready to ready to roll. <laughs> that's just coiner being coiner. Pretty much. <laughs> Chicago way. But yeah, the Chicago way. In the ICU, 60, 90 day mort- sixty or ninety day mortality is um, fairly common, and those are the two endpoints that I would say were used for the ideal ICU, the Akiki, and the uh, the Elaine trial. So that there's- This is very right, consistent. It's, it's okay. consistent. And the ATN study used 60 days and renal right. study yeah. used 90 days. Right. Both of you read a lot of studies in this realm. If we were to grade this, the, the methods that Swap just presented on an A through D, won't go to F, what would you give this study? I mean, for a study, the size of multinational study, I mean, I think this is as best as they could have done. I mean, I'm close to giving it as an A. I mean, the next best, I mean, the best study I've ever been part of or ever read was Paul Polovsky's ATN study. And that's definitely an A. And I think this is pretty close to an A. Jay, what do you think? Yeah, no, I, I wholeheartedly agree. I mean, the issues that I have with it that we'll maybe talk about later are not with the way that they did their methods. I think that serum creatinine and urine output are really lousy ways to assess the sev- how severe someone's AKI are. But I can't fault Ron and Sean for picking this. I think that it's an A for sure because they've, they've built on the other studies that were in place and it takes a long time to do this. And so that no, I have no concerns at all. They did a great job. And all the equipoise stuff that we've already talked about is a is a unique way of doing it to handle some of the foibles of some of the other studies, right? The Elaine study had 90-something percent of people in the standard arm, non-accelerated arm, go on to receive dialysis. They built in protocols to try to uh, make sure that that didn't happen, you know, that that didn't happen, that they were strict about what what's it going to take to get someone to get dialysis if they're if they're in the standard arm, which I think is key. Exactly. I mean, there is a tension between you know doing a very clean, perfect experiment versus doing a large enough experiment which is pragmatic and and where you've got the large numbers, where you've got multiple centers involved. You know, if this was a single center study in mice, then you could do it much more cleanly. I'm sure than uh, seven. Than Mice, seven, seven mice. Then it because be it's a large clean. study. Seven. Yeah. Because it's a very large study. <laughs> Huge one. I mean, you only need three to do statistics. No, no, no. Oh, that, that's wrong. <laughs> 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 that, that I mean, I'm saying like it, the statistical section. program will make a p-value. Sure. I'm just saying a statistical program will re, will produce a p-value. I'm not saying it's. It, you, you should okay? and they so can all be the same gender too right all just male mice I, right I, I do not want to see the next r01 grant saying nephro sparks <laughs> is okay with three mice per group that is not true i'm just saying you can get a p value he wants at least at least seven 
Okay, but we're not done with we're not done with. The oh, we're, we're almost we done. With the the we got to do the statistics. Okay, yeah, the yeah, stats are very exclusion simple. Criteria, so it's a negative right? trial. We got to hit that power analysis hard. So uh, they had a bunch of secondary outcomes like dialysis dependence, which we'll see is pretty cool uh, in this case, uh, and many others, including quality of life. Uh, they had adverse events, including renal, um, sorry, adverse events related to kidney replacement therapy and vascular access, uh, which if you recall, were higher in the early dialysis arm with the Ikiki trial. So for the analysis, they made an assumption that the 90-day mortality would be about 40% in the standard therapy group, and that there would be a 15% relative between group difference, so uh, absolute of six. So going from 40 to 34 uh, so in the accelerated arm that you would see a 34% uh, mortality at 90 days. So for that, they would need 2,800 patients and then accounting for, you know, some uh, loss of follow-up and withdrawal of consent. Uh, they went for 3,000 patients, uh, which is what they did achieve. So if that had been positive, it would have been an NNT of about 18. Would that have changed your management, an NNT of 18, dropped a mortality from 40 to 34%? Would you start everybody at doubling the serum creatinine, knowing that you would do dialysis in, in a third of patients who wouldn't even need it? I would have taken that. Yeah, uh, a 6% decrease in absolute mortality at, at 90 days is, is pretty good. And this pretty is a good. disease that 40% people die, right? So being able yeah. to save 6% more is, is huge. Yep, agreed. 15% more. So yeah, 15% more. Yeah, absolute 6%, but 15% more. I think the, the biggest, I just want to bring up this and, and a swap just said, this is a disease. And, you know, I think that's a challenge because uh, it's often not the disease. It's the it's a secondary manifestation of a disease. So, Swap, do you want to comment on that to say, like, is it really AKI 30% mortality or is it right. there's something else that's 30% mortality? Right. As, a, as a true critical care nephrologist, I have to say, no, AKI kills, Matt. I mean, there have been other... So you think that's the primary driver of death? Yeah, I mean, there have been studies which shows that, you know, um, even people without AKI versus with AKI, even with the same other comorbidities, there's higher mortality. So there's something about AKI despite us But the primary it. disturbance still needs to be dealt with and fixed in order to make the patient better irregardless of AKI. True, and I guess we're not... So if they have abdominal perforation, for instance, or if they have, you know, or they had a perforated aorta. But I think uh, what Anita is pointing out is that people who do have AKI do or worse. don't have AKI in a critical... They do, but setting, I think they, that's they where... That's the challenge uh, but, but could, of this whole area is that it's it's not an isolated but, but could, AKI. Exactly, but you could argue that who is it that gets AKI, right? And, and the AKI represents all the bad things that have happened during that hospital stay so far. Uh, and it's sort of the culminating event... Um, but you know, it, it represents many other things. It's very heterogeneous, but you would hope that the sample size accounts for that. Jay, can you repeat what you were saying? I was. I didn't mean to talk. I didn't mean to talk over Jenny. I was saying it's no different than CKD, right? When you look at big population studies about CKD, like the Framingham study or the MESA trial, kidney disease is always at the top of the list of what's killing people. But no, very few of those people have isolated kidney disease like IgA, right? They've got diabetic and hypertensive nephropathy, the same way that the people who get AKI have sepsis or cardiogenic shock, and that the mm -hmm. kidney is the downstream organ that gets injured because of something else that's going on, right? I, 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 guess I completely agree with those things and also about AKI. I was just trying to be a little bit sort of provocative into thinking about these studies and how... Renal replace. Oh, sorry. Kidney <laughs> I did it myself. I'm oh horrible. <laughs> Power analysis, please. Do we have anything on anything interesting there? So no, it, it's pretty reasonable. Uh, they stratified things, and and um, they're looking at SOFA score and 
the SAPS 2 score, um, which goes from 0 to 163, as I just learned a few minutes ago. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> um, we are experts. <laughs> yeah. So, otherwise, you know, it, was, it is pretty, you know, this was a standard good RCT. There's nothing. Uh, what, what, is it, what is this bullshit about this modified intention to treat? I thought there was intention to treat and there was as treated. What is modified intention to treat? So let me see what they did. <laughs> that was rude. Yeah. I was. He, he I, always, I, he always I, does that. I gotta, I, 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 I just don't know what it is. And they don't, defi- I don't, they don't define it. Or Jay will tell me how they defined it on page 44 if you had read the damn article, Toph. <laughs> you haven't even read the article. That's how bad this is. Yeah. <laughs> but sometimes they... <laughs> Jay, what is that? Do you know what it is? I, I thought that it related to the idea that, right, if you're intended, that there are people in both arms who didn't get dialysis. More specifically, there are people in the accelerated arm that didn't wind up getting it. And since right, that... percent Right, that, that small number, since they didn't get it, they're not included in the analysis. I'm not 100% sure. I'm not... a. Uh, an epidemiologist, but I thought that that's what that meant, that that 3% in the non-accelerated arm, they weren't, they're not part of the intention to treat analysis because they didn't actually get the intervention. Anita, you think that's what that, that, that's what it's referring to? Yes. To me, that makes sense, but I haven't thought that deeply into it yet. Okay. Jenny, you're going to tell us some results. What do we got? Wow. We're at results now, finally. <laughs> okay. Yes. Yes. We're at results. I mean, we're only 37. I don't know why you're surprised. That's pretty, that, we're ahead of schedule. <laughs> That's true. Okay. So out of the original over 11,000 patients that were screened, a 3,019 were assigned to therapy arms and they were evenly split between the accelerated group and a standard group. 2% ended up being ineligible in the accelerated group and 1.3% ended up not being eligible in the final analysis in the standard group. And there were other smaller numbers lost to follow-up or patients who withdrew. So table one goes over the baseline characteristics uh, in these two groups, and they're pretty evenly matched. I- I'll tell you, it made me feel a lot better about my patient care that they lost ICU patients. <laughs> right? You'd think that that would be pretty easy to keep track of, but go on. 90 days is a long time. It's a long time. time. Again, going back to table one, goes over the baseline characteristics of the two groups, which were evenly matched. 43.9% of all participants had CKD, and this was evenly split again between the two groups, and about 60% in the whole cohort had sepsis, again evenly matched between groups. Other parameters were evenly matched as well. And one thing to note, though, is after randomization, the accelerated group had a median fluid balance that was 2.5 liters positive, as opposed to the standard group that was at 2.8 liters positive at the time of randomization. So for the primary outcome, death at 90 days, 43.9% of the accelerated group had that and a 43.7% of the standard group. So this was a relative risk of 1.00 with a confidence interval of 0.93 to 1.09. So basically no difference. Absolute risk difference of 0.2%, P equals 0.92 for that. And similar results were also found in the adjusted analysis. Figure one shows the Kaplan-Meier curve where you also don't see a separation of the curves. It's interesting. Almost every study you see, when they do the power analysis, they overestimate the mortality. And when you actually run the study, they're like, oh, patients did way better than we thought they were going to do because they always look at retrospective data and and people in, in RCTs always do better. Here, the patients in the study actually did worse than predicted by a few percentage. I thought that was of note. Yeah. And for the secondary outcome, 
So in terms of continued <laughs> dependence on dialysis, uh, there was 10.4% in the accelerated group versus 6.6% in the standard group, which was actually something that we should talk about um, in the discussion section. And this was a relative risk of 1.74 for the accelerated group with a confidence interval of 1.24 to 2.43. In terms of other outcomes, there were no significant difference in the composite of death or dialysis dependence, major adverse kidney events uh, at 90 days, ICU death at 28 days, and length of hospitalization. There were no big differences between groups in the causes of death. And I think in the accelerated group, on average, they ended up with half a day less time on dialysis in the standard group. They did have a shorter ICU stay, but there were no differences in ventilator-free days or uh, vasopressor-free days, or ICU-free days at 28 days. The accelerated group had a higher risk of rehospitalization. This was a relative risk of 1.23, but no difference in the number of hospitalization-free days, and the quality of life was similar among survivors in both groups. Uh, figure 2 shows the results of subgroup analyses, and these included uh, categories such as sex, estimated GFR, SAPS-2 score, geography, et cetera, and there were no significant differences. Uh, there were more adverse events uh, reported in the accelerated group, 23% versus 16.5% in the standard group. And uh, most of those were related to hypotension and hypophosphatemia. And of note, there was a trend towards more bloodstream infections in the accelerated strategy group with a P of 0.07 for bacteremia. But there was no difference with sig serious adverse events. You're right. I was surprised about that. You got anything else or we got uh, that, that, is that? I mean, that, that pretty much sums it up. Uh, I think the only other thing was bottom line, no difference. No, no difference, but more dialysis dependence. Mm -hmm. And more dialysis. In the, a lot in more the accelerated dialysis group. In the accelerated mm -hmm. group, right? It's pretty much what, 96.7% of patients got dialysis in the accelerated group mm -hmm. and only 60% mm -hmm. got dialysis in the standard group. Go. Yeah. Yeah. One subgroup they didn't look at was the oliguric patients. So there's about 45% of the patients were oliguric. And I actually emailed Ron about this and say, you know, um, is this going to be, a, you know, another analysis? And he said he's planning to do one because that's the group that we worry about the most, right? So if I have a non-oliguric patients on a Friday, you know, I might say, okay, I'm going to wait till, you know, a couple more days to see what's happening. But if I have an oliguric or almost aneuric patients on a Friday, that's the patient who's probably going to get hyperkalemic by the next day. So, um, I, yeah, I was curious about that. That's right. A, a comment, you know, if you look at the Elaine study, you know, although it had issues, a single center, but it, it had, it looked like better outcomes in the surgical ICU. And if you look at um, figure two in the subgroup analysis, if anything, the surgical subgroup tended to be better on the standard strategy. Any thoughts on that and why that's the case? Now, I looked at the... Uh, the type of patients, and it was like aortic aneurysm repair, cardiopulmonary bypass. Like those are the kind of patients you might think would do better if you started dialysis early on. Yeah, so I, I think that that's right, Matt, right? I mean, remember that the Elaine trial is specifically just those who underwent cardiothoracic surgery. It was surprising and sort of goes against what has been published before. I know that they are looking to replicate and do a multi-center Elaine trial specifically in European, I think predominantly German uh, cardiothoracic units. And I think that that study is already ongoing. And I think that for me, it highlights or what we're talking about highlights an issue that we were talking about before that we have lumped all AKI as the same process, 
But the phenotype of AKI is probably completely different if you've been on a cardiopulmonary bypass machine versus if you're septic after your stem cell transplant versus if you're septic and showing up with, you know, COVID. But each one of those things is probably different because they're all being identified by changes in urine output or changes in creatinine, lump them together, but they're all completely different processes. So it's unfair to expect them all to uh, respond the same. So I think it's reasonable to continue to investigate it, but you're right that this study, uh, uh, lumping all of surgical patients together, seems to point that maybe there isn't a benefit there. But not all post-operative AKI is the same. So, Which is so, opposite of what Elaine showed. Elaine's, yes. stu- Elaine's study, you know, the, my, one of my other issues, Elaine, was the entire, and there's no nephrologist on that study, um, others. I don't know if you've noticed that. It's entirely done by intensivists. And I think that we see the other side of dialysis, right? We see the complications that we, um, from actually starting somebody on dialysis and all, all those issues. But I, I sometimes feel that intensivists fail to see that. They're like, oh, this is a machine we can use. Let's go ahead and put the patient on it. But what about the hypotension? What about the increases for infections? What about delayed renal recovery? You know, I mean, I, I feel like dialysis has a lot of complications and maybe people are not recognizing that. Trying to figure out to get someone off dialysis is not a, is not a trivial thing. Mm-hmm. And if you see in Elaine, um, both groups did get dialysis. They just got it earlier or later. Uh, and is the benefit of start AKI is the benefit from not getting dialysis at all, uh, then uh, that wasn't, you know, provided to the control arm in Elaine. Pivoting off of what Swapnil said, one of the benefits was not getting dialysis at all in this study. If you take a look at the proportion of patients that had persistent renal failure at kidney failure at 90 days, persistent kidney replacement therapy requirement at 90 days, it was 10% in the uh, early start and 6% in the uh, late start, which is exact ratio of two thirds of people who didn't even need dialysis. It's like that the, the, all the, the all the protection came from the, that that 40% that didn't need dialysis. Which is interesting to think that the uh, kidney replacement therapy is uh, endpoint and Maybe it's more subjective than we thought. Yeah, well, so for sure. For me, it makes me, to harp back to the point I just made, it makes me think that those people have, a, you know, if you've got 15 to 40%, depending on the study that we're talking about for these four big randomized trials, the people in your uh, standard arm who don't go on to require dialysis, to me is a very different type of AKI than someone, you know, than the, the people who do require it. And I think that it speaks to a different level of tubular dysfunction, a different type of injury. Um, and it makes me wonder, I know we've talked that, and you guys have said that this is the definitive trial, but I really do think we need better ways to identify the people who actually need it, because I don't think that people would be doing cancer trials in, and you wouldn't be giving everyone chemotherapy if 15 to 40% of people in, uh, in your study didn't actually need the chemotherapy, right? But I think the point is that you can't prospectively tell which 40, what, who, which that 40% is, right? I mean, at least... According well, to the one thing, didn't the uh, Akiki trial utilize um, one of these novel biomarkers to enrich or to diminish the uh, group of patients that uh, had AKI? It was Elaine trial used NGL. And it was only a few patients that got excluded or something. I right. can't remember. Right. In the in swap, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I know that in the original version or the pilot version of the, uh, the START trial, they used NGAL as well, but it turned out that it wasn't sensitive enough because exactly. every, yeah, everyone it, had high values, right? Exactly. The first 100 patients, which was the pilot uh, START AKI, we used NGAL, but it was totally useless. So, uh, What do you mean totally it, useless? That means the people that- It did not gonna... discriminate. 
yeah, it did not discriminate among the people who were not going to have dialysis in the standard arm. It was high. So Jay and Anita, if I was to give you guys a big multi-center uh, program project grant, what, what would you because do? Because NFJ's been doing great. We're now starting to fund international trials. NFJC award, money. call it. NFJC award. It's, yeah. it's several oh, yeah. million dollars. Several. What, what, what would you do to make a trial to discriminate between patients uh, that need it and, do, and, and don't need it? And what, what would we need to do to make that happen? So my opinion, as I said before, I think we should get away from doing KRT trials and focus on maybe therapeutic options. So maybe getting that biomarker that detects AKI early and finding out if we have any anything that we can treat AKI early enough um, to prevent us from needing dialysis. That's what the my therapeutics. Yes, therapeutics. I, so I'm going to echo that, right? I think that there's actually great data that shows that if you treat AKI or some types of AKI early enough, uh, you can uh, decrease the severity of it and improve patient outcomes. Some of that is biomarker driven, some of that is creatinine driven, but I definitely think that we collectively could do a better job, and that's not we as nephrologists, it's we as physicians can do a better job of treating early AKI. I think everyone out there thinks that they're providing optimal kidney care or some people may think they're providing optimal renal care. Uh, they're wrong. They're providing optimal kidney care. But that people still get nephrotoxins. People are still allowed to sit hypotensive. They're allowed to become hyperkalemic. And that we can do all those things early. And I bet if we do those things properly, we diminish the severity of AKI. Because there's data from Nick Selby. There's data from uh, Alex Zarbach. There's data from lots of people that show that you can improve outcomes doing the simple things. And does, is a nephrologist needed to do that, or can we teach people to do it? I think that we can teach people to do it, but I think it takes the nephrologist as the physician champion to sort of tell people, hey, yeah, some people need those nephrotoxins, right? You've got gram-negative sepsis. I'm hard-pressed to tell you to stop the aminoglycoside as part of your double coverage. But not everyone on aminoglycosides has got gram-negative sepsis of an unknown source, right? Some people are on it just because... Some people need their NSAIDs because they can't get opioids, right? And you don't want to give them baclofen or, or some or some other agent, right? And so uh, it's not it's not about absolutes, but for sure, intensivists and primary care doctors and hospitalists can all be taught that. But as nephrologists, I think it falls to us sort of educate uh, to educate those folks and be physician champions for AKI. So two years ago, Paul Pulaski and uh, Sean Bagshaw had this great debate about nephrologists versus intensivists in the ICU. And, but essentially, it all boiled down to collaboration, right? I mean, sometimes we walk into ICU during our rounds for five, 10 minutes and think that we can tell the intensivist what to do for their patient in a very nephrocentric way. And I think that's how we have this us versus them mentality. And, uh, you know, I really try hard to work with intensives because they're looking at the whole patient and we shouldn't be focusing on, you know, renal issues as to be the guiding um, uh, way on how to manage these patients. So I do think a better collaborative um, relationship between the intensivists and nephrologists is essential to um, determine starting of renal replacement therapy, the type of KRT or what, um, whatever it is. Yeah, that debate was really fun because, you know, Paul, I remember that Paul Pavelski was, you know, he's a gentleman. 
and Sean Bagshaw came in, you know, like almost like a cowboy saying, hey, I'm the intensivist. <laughs> I'm the most hated guy in this room right what, now. One's got a tie uh, on and one, and one doesn't. Yeah, he had a bow tie and, uh, and he didn't even have a tie. Sean was, yeah, it was hilarious. But um, uh, Jay, you promised a rant on, on creatinine and the fact that it's used is not very useful. And maybe, you know, could this be a segue into some other biomarkers or some other strategies to pick up AKI early? So, I, I, you know, I yes, I think that that's fair. I think the other piece that I would argue even before ranting about creatinine is I don't know about anyone's practice, but I just finished two weeks on our ICU service. And on average, we don't get called to see the patient until they've had a 280% increase in their creatinine. So that this is not... This is not necessarily practice changing, and this is coming from someone who has preached this, has tried to be the physician champion, and so that I think that we can do better to get early. I think that I'm happy to say that uh, if you want to invite me back in a couple of months after we have a a paper published that demonstrates that even at uh, our hospital in the setting of active AKI, we all could do better. But I do think, just like I said before, the creatinine and urine output, they're the best tools that we've got now, but they're certainly part of the problem here because we've identified people who have elevations in creatinine and drops in their urine output. But like I said, 15 to 40%, depending on which one of the four randomized trials you want to use, those, you know, those people don't go on to require dialysis. And so it seems crazy to me that we're still using these tools. Uh, I, I myself have worked on big data and electronic alerts. There are a variety of biomarkers. We were joking uh, earlier offline about albumin, but albumin and albumin to creatinine ratio is clearly a marker of tubular injury that everyone's got in their hospital that no one is really using to, uh, to track uh, uh, tubular injury, let alone simple things like looking at the urinal, you know, looking at the urinalysis, right? That's- so we've done papers on AI that have been able to predict the need for dialysis. Do you think it we should be doing, we should be employing those techniques to randomize these patients or to enroll patients? Uh, Is that, you know, the same idea? And I think Jay has a paper recently, right? In using I, machine learning. I do, right? So I have a paper that just came out uh, within the last two weeks where we validated an electronic risk score. Um, we've developed it in University of Chicago data, and then we validated it in uh, 200,000 admissions from Loyola University, which is a, a, a tertiary care center here in Chicago, and then also North Shore, which is a hospital system on the uh, in the northern suburbs. So about 400,000 patients where we validated that you can not only predict severe AKI, but dialysis requiring AKI. I would tell you though, and we get good area under the curve for 72 hours before people need dialysis. I would tell you that that shouldn't be surprising to anyone. As nephrologists all on the phone, we know what the labs look like uh, as someone is about to get dialysis, right? All the things that were part of the exclusion criteria that uh, Swap talked about, right? The bicarb begins to drop, the fat. Forget the creatinine in the BUM, but the bicarb drops, the phosph begins to creep up, the potassium slowly creeps up. And then if you uh, add a layer of looking at the vitals, you know all the same things too, that um, there's persistent well, need, or new onset. And Anita had mentioned earlier the alleguria, which I, I sure. totally lean on too hard because, you know, once the urine stops coming out, the things get bad in a hurry. So yeah. Jay, I have a question. So are you saying that you would probably start early like Elaine did or for the surgical patients, or you think there's merit to that? I, I guess I'm trying to... I guess if I had that NEF JC pot of money... I think that there's probably a combination of 
I do think that there's a population that is going to derive a benefit from uh, early care, if that includes dialysis, whether it's based on an electronic risk score or a biomarker, um, but also then looking and taking your uh, concerns about oliguria to heart, right? Uh, we've done work on the furosemide stress test, which demonstrates, uh, and you don't even have to look at my work. You can look at the work of someone like Natasha Saraswat in Thailand, where they actually used the uh, furosemide stress test as the trigger to initiate dialysis in someone who already has stage two AKI. They, Jay, why don't, why don't you back up a little yeah. bit and- what is a furosemide stress test besides something that sounds really cool? Yeah, well, I don't know that it's actually cool, but it's taking... No, no, it sounds cool. Fa- sounds fair cool. enough. It's taking someone who has early AKI, stage one or stage two, so... Um, stage one or stage two. And then okay, get- so let's that, try let's slow down. Stage one is a bump of a 0.3 or 50%. Or six hours of oliguria. And, and types two is a doubling. Doubling or 12 hours of oliguria. Okay. Yeah. So you got you got somebody who's got some AKA. They've already doubled their creatinine. You give them, what do you give them? You give them one mig per kg if they've never seen a loop diuretic before or 1.5 migs per kg if they've been exposed to loop diuretics before of furosemide. Okay. So you're no shrinking violet. You're giving them a big old slug of, right. of loop diuretic. Right. And if they make 200 cc's total in the first two hours or 100 cc an hour for the first two, we've demonstrated that those are people who are not going to go on to need dialysis. And what's your positive predictive value there? Uh, I mean, in terms of not needing dialysis, or what you, is, so I guess, is pretty- So the area under, uh, I got to think about what the positive predictive okay, value is. Area the area, area under the, the curve, curve uh, was 0.87 to 0.88 in the original and then in the uh, multi-center validation. I think it's full disclosure. If you look at the within the methods, because Ron and Sean, who were the primary authors of START, also participated in the multi-center validation, I think investigators were allowed to use the furosemide stress test as uh, as a way to figure out whether or not to clear up any equipoise that was there. So when Ron emailed me um, back, he did say that I asked about furosemide as well, and he said that there's no protocolized uh, approach, but if uh, investigators wanted to use them, they're welcome to use it. So again, I'm not sure if that data was collected to analyze or not. Okay. So now what was going on in Thailand? Right. So in Thailand, there's a separate trial that essentially looks at people who've got stage two AKI. They give them the furosemide stress test. If you fail the test, meaning you don't make that 200 cc's, you then get randomized to early versus late. So it sort of adds a layer on top of using serum creatinine and urine output. They pub- and what they find? They published their pilot data to show that it was feasible. Uh, there was no difference in a in a group of about I think 50 to 60 people, and they're doing a multi they're doing a multi center think international trial uh, throughout Southeast Asia. But those are also different patients on some level than what you see in Michigan. Oh, I get it. So then the next question: those 50 people that failed their FST and got a late start dialysis, did they see this difference in the number of people that needed dialysis, or they all everybody ended up needing dialysis? It really was just a matter of time. No. So the uh, so the people who didn't who wound up passing the FST and made urine, um, I think they weren't enrolled. What, right? They weren't enrolled. But when you go and look right. at them, um, only less than. Ten percent of them eventually wound up to get di- wound up getting dialysis. And the people that failed the FST get enrolled in the trial, get put into the late start. They ultimately all still needed dialysis, or the overwhelming majority. The overwhelming majority, like 80, not 80, a sixty percent right, issue, correct? 80, Eighty to ninety percent. Gotcha. Okay, that's what you need. Okay, it sounds like a reasonable way to go. But it's still it's funny, even the FST. Is since it's based on Aiken criteria or KDGO criteria, you're back to creatinine again. You well, can't get away from this thing. Well, right. So uh, that's just part of. 
trying to protocolize what, and Anitha already talked about it, you know, like, what are you going to do with that guy on Friday afternoon? Each and every one of us has been doing that. And nephrologists have been doing that. And intensivists have been doing it for decades. All it was was protocolizing yeah, what was right. there, right? So yep. I, I say that there are probably ways to then pair the FST with other early warning signals, whether it be uh, urinary biomarkers or an electronic uh, or an electronic signal. So I, I do use the FST, not you know how it was meant to be. So when I get called on a consult in the ICU, the patient is already in stage three. I try a chug of Lasix and if it doesn't work, yeah, I'm probably going to start them on CRT sooner than later. So I, I, I guess we've you know expanded the original FST to more advanced AKI as well. There, I mean, that's the that greatest topic. thing about being a nephrologist when they call you, like, they're first like, we're scared to give more Lasix. And you're like, let's do it. <laughs> let's do it. The, the thing about giving a big dose of Lasix IV. is that if you get a great response, the antidote is readily at hand. Well, exactly. You right? have the keys to the candy store. If you're like, we need to make urine, yeah. let's get this, ro- get this, get it rolling. The the other trial that seems to be going on, which I didn't know about until someone else brought out uh, during the chat, is so it looks like Stephen uh, Stephen Godry, who did the Akiki trial, is doing an Akiki two trial, and the Akiki two trial it's sort of uh, it it was pitched uh, as late versus very late, uh, but it seems to be I'm just looking up the protocol. It looks to be based on urea. So these are patients with stage three uh, Kidigo AKI. Um, if if the urea is more than forty. Uh, all of them, which is uh, 40 millimoles, would be a BUN of uh, maybe 110 or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, then uh, they they are either allocated and uh, oliguria and urea. So they have the, uh, RRT now versus um, wait until uh, the urea goes up to 50, which is like maybe 140 or so BUN. Um, I don't know what, again, 800 patients that they want to randomize. So yeah, this is probably where one area where I would say we disagree quite a bit in the ICU, right? Because people think urea correlate with uremia and any patient that gets confused in the ICU and their BUN is what, I don't know, 70, 80. Yeah, it's like, oh, please dialyze them. They're confused because they're uremic. And I, I would say that's probably the most I would argue with an intensivist about trying to explain urea and uremia. But sometimes I'm, I will do it because it, they're probably confused because of all the medications that has been accumulated more than um, any mental status from actual uremia. But then they'll yeah, wake up and then... The key one. Yeah. And then patients will be like... And then intensive is like, oh, yeah, they're uremic. But the, yeah, but the dialysis will help anyway and be like, well... Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I, I will do it sometimes, but not because they're uremic. <laughs> right. Yeah, Exactly. Like, I don't think they're uremic, but they probably have a lot of toxic medications. So either way. <laughs> yeah, maybe the baclofen. Exactly. <laughs> Got to get rid of that. Well, this is very fascinating. I mean, I... I yeah, I think, we're, I think we're done with this. Does anybody have any other final comments about this? No, I want to... Now I want to do our too long, didn't read. Swap, can you give a... And I'm going to limit you. I'm going to make you do it again if you go longer than a couple of minutes. I want a short summary of the... Of the Point to the study and the methods. Jenny, short summary of the results. So START AKI is a multi-center randomized control trials where patients with KDI go stage 2 or stage 3 AKI were randomized to standard or accelerated renal replacement therapy. In the accelerated, they had to be dialyzed in the first 12 hours, whereas in the standard, they had to develop some clinical indication for dialysis or have prolonged non-recovering AKI. The other key inclusion exclusion criteria were that 
if the, there was a physician veto where the treating intensivist or nephrologist could exclude a patient that they thought was going to recover or not recover and needed dialysis right away. The primary outcome was 90-day mortality and the trial was powered for a 15% reduction in this uh, mortality at 90 days. Excellent. And Jenny, what did they find? So for the primary outcome, there were no statistically significant differences between the two groups, um, but there was more dialysis dependence in the accelerated group and some more uh, minor adverse events also in the accelerated group. Jay or Anita, do you have any uh, uh, thoughts about where this puts us in terms of this study? You know, how does this study fit into the literature? Yeah, I mean, I think it validates um, some of the prior work. And I think, as you guys said, it's. It, I think it's a pretty definitive trial, but it, with the limitation that I acknowledged before, it depends on what your practice is, right? Uh, for us, we're not necessarily seeing people at stage two AKI, and very rarely are we dialyzing them unless there's a hard indication like hyperkalemia or massive acid or severe acidosis. And so that um, I don't view this as a practice changing, but perhaps a practice reaffirming uh, trial for, uh, uh, for us. But, but let, us, let us say, if you had been a, a, a nephrologist who was eager to start CRT early on with AKI, uh, I mean, patients that don't have, you know, hyperkalemia, profound acidosis, or profound volume overload, this is a study that really should make you question some of your previous assumptions. True? So 100%. I think the biggest piece, which I don't think we paid enough attention to on, on the chat, is the idea that uh, the people who started early get stuck on dialysis for longer, and that it sort of highlights, um, I think that's often overlooked in terms of AKI recovery and post-AKI care, that oftentimes people will go out and they'll be robo-dialyzed in the community um, because, hey, they were on dialysis at the hospital. They'll be dialyzed at the rehab, and then they'll be dialyzed in the community, and people won't necessarily look for recovery because they've been on dialysis for so long. And that there's a signal in the study that possibly, and I don't want to but the dialysis itself seemed to perpetuate this kidney injury, something that we've known and talked about. And here's some here's a signal supporting that. Is that right? Uh, for sure, right? There's great data from Mike Hung and from other folks that show uh, hypotension, uh, in, you know, a history of hypotension, which, you know, this study didn't show, but in folks who have dialysis requiring AKI, perpetuates the AKI and keeps those people on dialysis for longer and forestalls any recovery when recovery is possible. Anita, you get the last word. What do you got for us? So I, I completely agree with Jay that this reaffirms the practice that we already have. So about 10 years ago, when a fellow was graduating and they were roasting the attendings, I said, from Dr. Vijan, I learned to dialyze first and ask questions later. And from Dr. M, I learned never to dialyze. But I, even me, dial, as an early dialyzer, I think that's the uh, standard arm in this group and not the accelerated arm. So um, I think this reaffirms the practice. And uh, also to add on to Jay's point about dialysis, you know, being harmful for renal recovery, we did a sub-study of the ATN, we did a sub-study of the ATN study, and basically it showed that people who were on the more frequent dialysis arm had, uh, um, were like less likely to recover renal function. So definitely a harm. Excellent. Excellent. So what we have here, we call it, it's our tubular secretion. It's a moment to discuss anything that you've seen on the internet or in nephrology that you'd like to discuss. Swapnil is always eager to do this. It's his favorite part of the podcast. It's the only reason we've kept it in. And But so Swap, what do you got for us? Um, so among the fun people I've started following, uh, there is this guy called Oded Rechavi. Uh, I don't know how you say his name. He's an Israeli uh, uh, scientist who does... Uh, 
research on memory and uh, ancient DNA. Uh, but he tweets about, you know, there are these videos that people put up, puts up a different uh, description of the video. You know, so there is a dog, which is, you know, in this case, is sneaking up some food and he says running a secret experiment on the weekend. The, it, they're hilarious. There are videos with animals or something else going on and he puts some scientific explanation. It's a must follow for some light moments on the, the otherwise very... Are you trying to tell us you're on TikTok now? Uh, it's uh, not TikTok yet, but... <laughs> By the time this podcast comes out, TikTok will be a distant memory. We will forget about it. <laughs> Jenny, you got anything? Um... Actually, I don't. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Matt, what do you got? I think I want to give a shout out to the Kidney Diet Challenge group. Um, so what's this? This is a five-day challenge. I think 500 people have signed up for to uh, sort of see what it's like to uh, undergo the diet that we tell our patients to to do as advanced CKD or patients on dialysis. And they have a, a webinar each night at um, 7 o'clock, uh, which I'm going to watch after this and because I'm, I'm enrolled into this, to the uh, educational study or whatever it is. And uh, they have uh, uh, like the cooking doc is going to give a tutorial online about how to cook. They have like really good sort of recipes you can follow and, and hopefully help you be able to describe this diet to your patients better. Awesome. Excellent. Jay, you got anything? I don't know that I do. I saw the CKD uh, diet thing today. I love that I saw about seven different nephrologists all wake up this morning and say that they had orange juice or grapefruit juice and they uh, they dropped the, the ball. The grapefruit juice. <laughs> I've never had that. So, <laughs> um, Nita, what do you got? On that note, you know, I had to, I tweeted this thing about the coconut water and the thousand milligrams of potassium. It's that, a lot. That wasn't it? I was shocked. I, I yeah, so I'm like I'm just imagining a, a dialysis patient drinking this, um, you know, chucking this down for their lunch and coming to the ER with her. Yeah, so I don't know. I just felt like compelled. I had to tweet that. Yeah, you know? and I saw so wait, that you wait, were growing. Need, coconut yeah, start from the beginning. Start from the beginning of this. What's the story about coconut water? So I was having a coconut water uh, from a can uh, for lunch, as one does. Yes, and it had thousand milligrams of potassium, nine hundred eighty-eight milligrams of potassium yeah. in one can. So, does it taste good? You know, no, it's yummy. not as good as a, not, not as good as a can. fresh so coconut. Heartless no. Harvest is no. delicious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fresh coconut is delicious. That's what I thought, Anita. Didn't you say you were trying to grow the coconuts in St. Louis? In St. Louis? Oh my God! Global warming is worse than I thought. <laughs> Get back, Humphreys. Uh, hey, they'll grow yeah, them in Mississippi. Was the banks of the Mississippi grow some really nice coconuts. I come from the land of coconuts, literally, you know, so that's where I grew up. But yeah, so but anyway, coconut water has a lot of potassium. Yeah, I actually drink coconut water for the potassium. So Yes, which is good, right? Unless you have not yeah, much. Yeah, right. Right, an important exception. <laughs> is there a warning on the on the can not for no. with kidney disease? Luckily, coconut water is not mainstream in U.S. yet, right? And it's relatively expensive. So, so is that that, that so coconuts that do have a lot of potassium? I never would have thought that. Hmm. And, and and as I was saying in the chat, is that in in India at least it's something. It's a tradition that if someone is in the hospital, you know, when you go to visit them, you take coconut water. For some reason, it's considered healthy. 
and and so they're all on loop diuretics. They all and, need it. And uh, we used to joke that if my practice doesn't work well in the hospital, I'll open up a coconut shop outside <laughs> the hospital because everyone who goes in, all the visitors, you know, buy uh, coconuts as they are going <laughs> walking in. around drinking coconuts. <laughs> and and for our patients, it's a disaster, right? Avocados too. Love avocados. Joel, so what, what's your uh, secretion? It, this week was uh, ASN Abstract Reveal Week. Everybody do okay? Everybody have their fellows going to have something at the at the ASN Kidney Week? I know Matt loves to submit abstracts. Oh, I submitted 90 of them and 89 <laughs> got accepted. <laughs> oh, love abstracts. So, I don't know. Uh, I couldn't. I had no energy this year somehow. Uh, so that so I've been working with the uh, the skeleton key group. This is a group of nephrology fellows that put together electrolyte cases on the. Uh, it's called the Renal Fellow Network, Matt. I'm not sure if you're familiar. Yeah. Hey, that's all. That's just what's this uh, movement? <laughs> is it is it the Renal Fellow Network? Uh, come on, <laughs> hey, yeah, all right, come it's on, now. Renal Fellow Network. Hey, yeah. I've already <laughs> muted you on Twitter. Okay, so <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, the SKG they. They did a survey of both their readers and they and they through the results of the the survey of the readers and, they, and it's, it kind of came as a good time. You know, there's a lot of remote learning, and so they have this remote learning techniques where they do it on the renal fellow network and they do it on Twitter and they have visual abstracts and it's pretty cool. And they also uh, did a survey of the participants in the group to see what they got out of it, and both the abstracts were accepted. It's a pretty it's pretty cool. I'm pretty excited about that. It's a great yeah. It's a really a lot a lot of the fellows just love reading. Skeleton Key Group, when it comes out, everyone's listening. and, and Yeah, it's been, it's been very successful. Yeah. Hey, thank you guys for joining us. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks for having us.